Shalone Kaysen Show, and we are talking about the timeline of the Catholic Church, the timeline of church history. This is episode three. In episode one, we just talked about an overview of church history, and we talked about the ministry of Jesus and the founding of the church. In episode two, we talked about the years 34 to 50, talking about St. Stephen, who was the first martyr, Our Lady of the Pillar, and James the Great going to evangelize in Spain. We also talked about Paul starting his journey with Barnabas and the Council of Jerusalem. Today, we're talking about Paul's uh, epistles. We're talking about Thomas the Apostle, Nero, the Great Fire of Rome, Pope Linus, more about Nero, and the Gospel of Mark. So stay tuned. We're talking about the Timeline of Church History, Episode 3. So let's get started with Paul's seven undisputed epistles and exactly what is that about. So let's look it up real quick. All right, so the Pauline epistles. Give me one second. The Pauline epistles, also called epistles of Paul or letters of Paul's, are the 13 books of the New Testament attributed to Paul the Apostle, although the authorship of some of them is in dispute. Among these epistles are some of the earliest extant Christian documents. They provide an insight into the beliefs and controversies of early Christianity. As part of the canon of the New Testament, they are foundational texts for both Christian theology and ethics. The epistle to the Hebrews, although it does not bear his name, was traditionally considered Pauline. Although Origen, Tertullian, and Hippolytus, among others, questioned its authorship. And those are people from, you know, the early centuries, so they have a better idea of who wrote what. Uh, but from the 16th century onwards, opinion steadily moved against Pauline authorship, and few scholars now ascribe it to Paul, mostly because it does not read like any of his other epistles in style and content. Most scholars agree that Paul actually wrote seven of the Pauline epistles, but that four of the epistles in Paul's names are pseudo-epigraphic, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, and that two other epistles are of questionable authorship, 2 Thessalonians and Colossians. And what does pseudo-epigrapha uh, mean? It's basically a falsely attributed work, text whose claimed author is not the true author or work whose real author attributed to a figure of the past. So potentially Ephesians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are works attributed to Paul, but not exactly from Paul. So according to some scholars, Paul wrote these letters with the help of a secretary um, who would have influenced their style, if not their theological content. The Pauline epistles are usually placed between the Acts of the Apostles and the Catholic epistles in modern editions. Most Greek manuscripts, however, place the general epistles first and a few minuscules place the Pauline epistles at the end of the New Testament. So the Pauline epistles were written um, around 50 AD. And as you just heard, there are some arguments about which ones did Paul actually write. So there are seven of them that are undisputed, and there's other ones that are questionable. But as the church has stated over, um, I, I don't know, over 1500 years, all of them are worthy of reading. All of them are holy and inspired by the Holy Spirit. So you don't really have to worry about 
who actually wrote them, but um, it was around this time between 50 and 58 that Paul wrote these epistles. Moving on to 52, uh, the traditional arrival of St. Thomas the Apostle to Kerala, and Kerala is a state on the southwestern Malabar coast of India. And um, so Thomas the Apostle went to India and he he founded the Syro Malabar Catholic Church. Let's read about the Syro Malabar Catholic Church a little bit. Um, it's also called the Church of Malabar Syrian Catholics, and it's an Eastern Catholic major archiepiscopal church based in Kerala, India, which is, of course, we just said that's where St. Thomas went. It is an autonomous particular church in full communion with the Pope and the worldwide Catholic Church with self-governance under the code of canons of the Eastern churches. The church is headed by the Metropolitan and Gate of All India, Major Archbishop at this time, George Cardinal Allen Cherry. The Syro-Malabar Synod of Bishops, canonically convoked and presided over by the major archbishop, con constitutes the supreme authority of the church. Officially known as the Syro-Malabar Church, Syro-Malabar is a prefix coined from the words Syriac as the church employs the Eastern Syriac Rite Liturgy and Malabar, which is the historical name for modern Kerala. The name has been in usage in official Vatican documents since the 19th century. The Cyril Malabar Church is the largest of the Thomas Christians denominations with over 4 million believers and traces its origin to the ev evangelistic activity of Thomas the Apostle in the first century. So Thomas went to India and the people of the Cyril Malabar Church and other churches who were considered the Thomas Christians um, traced their heritage all the way back to Thomas the Apostle. The earliest organized Christian presence in India dates to the 4th century when Persian missionaries of the East Syriac Rite tradition, members of what later became the Church of the East, established themselves in modern-day Kerala and Sri Lanka. The Church of the East shared communion with the Great Church, Catholicism and Orthodoxy, until the Council of Ephesus in the 5th century, separating primarily over differences in Christology, and we're going to get into that in later episodes. So that's a little bit about the Syro-Malabar Church, which is basically the church that traces its heritage back to St. Thomas the Apostle. He went to India and evangelized there. That church still exists today, and there are many, many members, and they are actually um, separated for a time, but they came back, and now they're part of the Catholic Church once again. So it's um, the Syro-Malabar Catholic church. Very interesting. In 64, the Neronian persecution began under Nero after the great fire of Rome. Then we had the martyrdom of St. Peter, persecution of Christians, which continued intermittently until 300 AD. So from 64 to 300, there was persecutions and a lot of martyrdoms. A lot of Christians were murdered in the Colosseums, killed by beasts and other things, um, burned at the stake. It was a crazy time. But let's talk about Nero and the Great Fire of Rome a little bit. So the Great Fire of Rome um, was an urban fire that occurred in July 64 AD. The fire began in the merchant shops around Rome's chariot stadium, Circus Maximus, on the night of July 19th. After six days, the fire was brought under control. But before the damage could be assessed, the fire reignited and burned for another three days. In the aftermath of the fire, two-thirds of Rome had been destroyed. So that is a huge amount. Two-thirds of Rome got burned. 
So according to Tacitus and later Christian tradition, Emperor Nero blamed the devastation on the Christian community in the city, initiating the empire's first persecution against the Christians. However, some modern historians, including Princeton classicist Brent Shaw, have cast doubt on the traditional view that Nero blamed the, blamed the Christians for the fire. So, you know, I tend to go with the view that Nero blamed them because there was a huge persecution after the fire. Um, but, you know, people can have different differing opinions about this. We're so far removed from it. I mean, like almost 2000 years removed. It's kind of hard to say, you know, what actually happened. So uh, let's talk about the aftermath of the fire. So according to Tacitus, Nero was away from Rome in Antium when the fire broke out. Nero returned to the city and took measures to bring in food, supplies, and open gardens and public buildings to accommodate refugees. Of Rome's 14 districts, three were completely devastated, seven were, re were reduced to a few scorched and mangled ruins, and only four completely escaped damage. The fire destroyed mostly everything it came in contact with due to poorly built and maintained timber-framed homes. The Temple of Jupiter uh, Stator, the House of Vestals, and Nero's Palace, the Domus Transitoria, were destroyed. Also destroyed in the fire was the portion of the forum where the Roman senators lived and worked. However, the open mall in the middle of the forum remained and became a commercial center. The accusations of Nero having started the fire were further exacerbated by his quickness to rebuild burnt neighborhoods in the Greek style and to launch construction of his new palace. The new palace known as Golden House <coughs> excuse me, would have been massive, covering a third of Rome. Debris from the fire was used as fill for the nearby malaria-infested marshes. So that's basically what happened with the Great Fire of Rome. And from many historical accounts, not everybody agrees, it was blamed on the Christians, and that's when the persecution started. Also at this time, we have the martyrdom of St. Peter. So let's go and look into that and see if I can find something here about the martyrdom of St. Peter. Now, some of this information is in the Bible. Peter um, getting Peter getting thrown into jail and dealing with a lot of that stuff. You can find a lot of that information in the Bible. I don't want to be. I don't want to rehash that information. So I just want to go over information that specifically isn't in the Bible. That is just historically. And let's go to. Let's just search it. Martyr, dumb of saint. Peter. We don't have a Wikipedia page on it, but that's okay. We will find a solution. Next, we're going to talk about, uh, where were we? Next, we're going to talk about the martyrdom of St. Paul, and we're going to talk about Pope Linus and more persecutions with Nero. So the martyrdom of St. Peter. No, this is about the picture. We don't want to talk about the picture. We want to talk about what happened. So let me find that. St. Peter. Oh, maybe it's under St. Peter's page. Okay, let's see here. Biographical accounts, connection to Rome, death and burial. Here we go. <clears throat> okay. Okay. <clears throat> In the epilogue of the Gospel of John, Jesus hints at the death by which Peter would glorify God, saying, quote, 
When you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you, <clears throat> excuse me, and carry you where you do not want to go, unquote. This is interpreted by some as a reference to Peter's crucifixion. Theologian Donald Fay Robinson and Warren M. Smaltz have suggested that the incident in Acts 12, 1 through 17, where Peter is, quote, released by an angel, unquote, and goes to, quote, another place, unquote, really represents an idealized account of his death, which may have occurred in a Jerusalem prison in as early as AD 44. <clears throat> Why I'm like having to clear my throat, I don't know. Sorry about that. Let me take a little drink here. <clears throat> the Moratorium Reinfragment dated to the second century AD notes that the primary eyewitness to Acts, Luke, was not present at Peter's death. <clears throat> now, it is my belief of the early church tradition, which is that Peter died of crucifixion. Although, you know, we don't really have firsthand accounts, so we have to go by tradition uh, as much as possible, and the scholars can debate all they want. I'm not into that. Okay, so early church tradition says that Peter probably died by crucifixions with arms outstretched at the time of the great fire of Rome, which we just talked about, right? In the year 64. This took place three months after the disastrous fire that destroyed Rome for which the emperor Nero wished to blame the Christians. This Dies Imperii, regnal day anniversary, was an important one exactly 10 years after Nero ascended to the throne, and it was, as usual, accompanied by much bloodshed. Traditionally, Roman authorities sentenced Peter to death by crucifixion. In accordance with the apocryphal acts of Peter, he was crucified head down. And if you want to learn more about that, you can actually check out the acts of Peter, which is one of the earliest of the apocryphal acts of the apostles. The majority of the text has survived only in Latin translation of the Vercelli manuscript under the title Actus Petricum Simoni. It is mainly notable for a description of a miracle uh, contest between, let me see, well, let's see, uh, between St. Peter and Simon Magus, and as the first record of the tradition that St. Peter was crucified head down. You can check that out. I believe there is a translation of it into English. Uh, yes. So on the Wikipedia page, you can find a translation of the Acts of Peter in English if you wanted to check that out. That's where it was first written that Peter was crucified head down. Tradition also locates his burial place where the Basilica of St. Peter was later built directly beneath the Basilica's high altar. So um, the story goes that, and we're getting into the future a bit, but that's okay. We're going to hop back and forth. But the story goes that Constantine, after he won the Battle of Milvian Bridge against, I believe it was Maxentius, because he saw the symbol of Jesus in the sky, and he and Jesus said, in hoc signo vinces, with this sign you will conquer. He won the battle. He became the emperor of both parts of the empire because Rome at that time had two parts, Eastern and Western, and there were two different emperors. There was Maxentius for one part where Rome was actually the capital and Constantine for one part where there was a different capital. Constantine wanted it all. And through Jesus, he was able to get it all and he gave Christians freedom to worship. One of the things he did was he built a church for St. Peter on top of what was traditionally known as Peter's uh, burial place, 
which is the Basilica of St. Peter, which still stands today. And he built a church for St. Paul, which we'll talk about when we get to St. Paul's um, death. Okay, so Pope, Pope Clement I, in his letter to, to the Corinthians, which was written around 80 to 98, speaks of Peter's martyrdom in the following terms, quote, let us take the noble example of our own generation. Through jealousy and envy, the greatest and most just pillars of the church were persecuted and came even unto death. Peter, through unjust envy, endured not one or two, but many labors. And at last, having delivered his testimony, departed unto the and my computer might be, but they say that you're supposed to put AD first because it's Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, 80. And I see some people put it behind. I see some people put it first. I guess that's neither here nor there. But anyway, so we have proof that Christians believe that St. Peter was martyred in, um, very early in 80 to 98 AD. So this would have only been 15 to 20 years after his death. So the tradition, it has a good foundation that he was martyred, exactly how he was martyred, we are not sure. We only know from the Acts of Peter. All right, so I need to look up St. Paul next because we're going to talk about St. Paul's martyrdom. And we are also going to talk about Pope Linus becoming the second pope after St. Peter. But first, let's talk about St. Paul being martyred outside of the walls. Here we go. Death. Okay. The date of Paul's death is believed to have occurred after the great fire of Rome. Remember, we just talked about that. It is a very important moment in Christian history. So uh, make sure you, if you want to learn more about it, go to the Wikipedia page and look at some of the sources on the bottom. It's a very interesting time in Rome's history, and it is a very important time in Christian history because it's right after that great fire of Rome that St. Peter and St. Paul are both martyred, and, and they're some of the most important saints um, in all of Christian history. So it is a very strange and uh, interesting time. Okay, so uh, Paul was, was martyred right after Peter was martyred in July 64, but before the last year of Nero's reign in 68. So we're not sure the exact year, but it was around that time. According to the first epistle of Clement, which was written around 95 to 96 AD, Ignatius and Dionysius of Corinth, Paul was martyred. So three people wrote about it and they were all very close to him by 30 or 40 years. Dionysius of Corinth was the furthest away by about 100 years, but they all wrote that he was martyred. The apocryphal Acts of Paul, which is one of the major works of the earliest pseudo-epigraphical pseudo series from the New Testament apocrypha, apocrypha, excuse me, <laughs> apocrypha, it's, it's a hard word to say, um, also known as the apocryphal Acts, an approximate date given to the Acts of Paul is 160 um, AD. So. The Acts of Paul, which are not a part of the Bible, but it might be worth reading, also talk about his martyrdom. Tertullian, um, who was a prolific early Christian author from Carthage, Eusebius of Caesarea, 
who um, was a historian of Christianity, and Lactantius, who was an early Christian author, uh, Jerome, John Chrysostom, Sulpicius Severus, they all described the martyrdom of Paul, citing that Nero condemned Paul to death by decapitation at Rome. And um, decapitation, which is also known as beheading, um, was very common for Roman citizens who broke the law and who needed to, to be killed. But it was not, so that's the reason why Paul wasn't crucified. Crucifixion was a very nasty, drawn out, just unceremonious, you know, it's like crucifixion is for people who are not Roman citizens. You are below us, basically. It was what the Romans were saying with crucifixion. You're going to hang there. Everybody's going to walk by and see you. You are being belittled, even in your death. The reason why Paul wasn't crucified is because he was a Roman citizen. And if you're a Roman citizen and you were sentenced to death, you had to be decapitated. It was much more of a, and you can see this picture, this drawing here. Wait, where'd it go? No, I don't want to look at decapitation. Although it's probably an interesting article. I want to look at the picture. So you can see here that um, uh, this is a drawing by the beheading of St. Paul by Enrique Simonet in the 1800s. And you can see here that they tied him to a pillar and there is a, well, if you're watching the video, you can see here. If you're listening to the podcast later, you won't be able to see here, but you can get the idea. And there is an executioner here with a sword and he just uh, chopped his head off and there it is rolling. So that is sad, but these things do happen and we can believe and trust that St. Paul is in heaven and he is available to help us when we are in need. So moving on, um, a legend a legend later developed that his martyrdom occurred at Aquae Salviae on the Via Laurentina. According to this legend, after Paul was decapitated, his severed head rebounded three times, giving rise to a source of water each time that it touched the ground, which is how the place earned the name San Paolo alla Tre Fontaine, St. Paul at the Three Fountains. And now I want to talk about the St. Paul outside the walls. Okay, according to further legend, Paul's body was buried outside the walls of Rome at the second mile on the Via Ostiensis. And the Via Ostiensis was an important road in ancient Rome. It ran west 30 kilometers, which is 19 miles for Americans from the city of Rome to its important seaport of Ostia Antica, from which it took its name. The road began near the form Borium, ran between Aventine Hill and the Tiber River. So on the estate owned by a Christian woman named Lucinia, that's where Paul's body was buried. It was here in the fourth century that the Emperor Constantine the Great, remember I talked about him a little bit, and we will talk about him more when we get to the 300s, which is a few episodes away. So he built um, a church there. And between the 4th and 5th centuries, it was considerably enlarged by Emperors Valen Valentinian, Valentinian II, Theodosius I, and Arcadius. The present-day Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls was built there in the early 19th century. And let's check out St. Paul's outside the wall a little bit. So the Papal Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls 
commonly known as St. Paul's Outside the Walls, is one of Rome's four ancient papal major basilicas, along with the Basilica of St. John in the Lateran, St. Peter's, which we just talked about, and St. Mary Major. The basilica is within Italian territory and not the territory of the Vatican city-state, but the Holy See owns the basilica. We're going to talk about the Vatican city-state and the Holy See much later. That's not until actually the 19th century. It is a very interesting story, though. So the Holy See owns the basilica, and Italy is legally obligated to recognize its full ownership and to concede to it the, quote, immunity granted by international law to the headquarters of the diplomatic agents of foreign states, unquote. So yeah, St. Paul's outside the wall. We can, yeah, let's talk about it a little bit more. Why not? In 386, Emperor Theodosius I began erecting a much larger and more beautiful basilica with a nave and four aisles with a transept. So Emperor Constantine built it at first. You know, it was just, it was very nice, large church, but Emperor Theodosius after him made it even better. It was consecrated around the year 402 by Pope Innocent I. The work, including the mosaics, was not completed until Leo, Pope Leo I's pontificate, which was around 440, so about 40 years later. In the 5th century, it was larger than the old St. Peter's Basilica. The Christian poet Prudentius, who saw it at the time of Emperor Honorius, which is around 395 to 423, describes the splendors of the monument in a few expressive lines. Under Leo I, extensive repair work was carried out following the collapse of the roof on account of fire or lightning. In particular, the transept, the area around Paul's tomb, was elevated and a new main altar in presbytery installed. So, I mean, we could really geek out on architecture and church, uh, the history of church architecture, which is, oh man, just blows your mind how much detail and thought went into how they designed these churches. You can see a picture here of the facade um, of the current St. Paul outside the walls. We have a statue of St. Paul. And you can go on Wikipedia and see all this stuff uh, just as just as I do. And why do I use Wikipedia as the source? Some people might ask. Me being a teacher, me having a master's degree in education, why would I use Wikipedia? Isn't it, isn't it, you know, the devil's website? You're not getting real sources from here, right? That's not true at all. Um, and actually, when I got my degree, I used Wikipedia a lot. If I wasn't using journal articles like um, educational journals, scientific journals, I was using Wikipedia. You go here, for example, the first basilica was consecrated by Pope Sylvester. How do we know that? Well, we have a source right here. Wikipedia is just a bibliography website. It's literally a bibliography website. So if you want to know where the information came from, you go to the source and you see right here, vatican.va. This is literally the Vatican's website. And this information can be trusted because it is from the source of the Vatican. So Wikipedia is a bibliography and it collects all the information and presents it in an easy way to read. So that's why I love using Wikipedia. And that's why I use Wikipedia as the basis for my, for this particular show and my other show, which is Black Biographies. So we're going to move on. We're almost done with today's episode. The last thing we're going to talk about is Pope Linus and then um, the ending of the Nestorian persecution. So 
Pope Linus was the second bishop of Rome. His pontificate endured from AD 67 to his death. And again here, AD's first, sometimes it's last. It's very confusing. Is it AD 67 or is it 67 AD? I mean, I'm not sure. Okay, among those who have been Pope, Peter, Linus, and Clement are specifically named in the New Testament. I bet you didn't know that. Peter, Linus, and Clement are in the New Testament. They're the first three popes. Linus is named in the valediction of the second epistle to Timothy as being with Paul the Apostle in Rome near the end of Paul's life. So the earliest witnesses to the episcopate of Linus was Irenaeus, who in AD 180 wrote that the blessed apostles then, having founded and built up the church, committed into the hands of Linus the office of, of the episcopate, excuse me, episcopate. So very early on in AD 180, which is not that far removed, about 100 years from the events that happened, they were already writing about and saying that Linus was the second pope. There was a pope in the early church which, who is just the leader you know, the leader of the whole church. That's all a pope is. Um, and some people might argue, well, there was no pope or there was a pope, but it changed over the years. We have evidence from very, very, very early on that there was a pope and there was a line of popes. Linus was the second one. The Oxford Dictionary of Popes mentions that according to the early succession lists of bishops of Rome passed down by Irenaeus and Hegesippus and attested by the historian Eusebius, he was entrusted with his office by the apostles Peter and Paul after they had established the Christian church in Rome. By this primitive reckoning, he was therefore the first pope, but from the late second or early third century, the convention began of regarding Peter as a first pope. So they put Linus in charge of the church in Rome, which technically made him the pope. But as we all know, Jesus made Peter the first pope, the first person in charge of the church. So Linus is the second pope. Jerome described Linus as the first after Peter to be in charge of the Roman church, and Eusebius described him as the first to receive the episcopate of the church at Rome after the martyrdom of Paul and Peter. John Chrysostom wrote that, quote, this Linus, some say, was second bishop of the church of Rome after Peter, unquote, while the Liberian catalog described Peter as the first bishop of Rome and Linus as his successor in the same office. The Liber Pontificalis, which is a book of biographies of popes from St. Peter until the 15th century, also enumerated Linus as the second bishop of Rome after Peter, and of course, are the bishop of Rome at the time of this recording, and the pope is uh, Pope Francis. Um, but the Liber Pontificalis stated that Peter consecrated two bishops, Linus and Cletus, for the priestly service of the community while devoting himself instead to prayer and preaching and that it was Clement to whom he entrusted the universal church and appointed as his successor. And of course, Pope Clement I, also known as St. Clement of Rome, is listed by Irenaeus and Tertullian as well as the Bishop of Rome. He held that office from 88 to 99. We're going to get into him later in another episode. Tertullian also wrote of Clement as the successor of Peter. Jerome named Clement as the fourth bishop of Rome after Peter, if indeed the second was Linus and the third Anacletus, although most of the Latins think that Clement was second after the apostle. The Apostolic Constitutions, um, which is a Christian collection of eight treatises, treatises which belong to the church orders, um, note that Linus, whom Paul the Apostle consecrated, was the first bishop of Rome and was succeeded by Clement, 
whom Peter the Apostle ordained and consecrated. So if we want to go in order, we have Peter, then Peter was martyred, and then we have Linus, who was the second pope, and we have Clement. And we actually have a list of all the popes, and there's a great book that I read. Oh, I forgot to do this because I got all my stuff down here. There's a great book that I read that actually talks about every single pope. And it is very interesting. It's a it's a quick read because they didn't want to bog you down with all information about every single pope. So it's like a quick, you know, okay, we're just going to give you a few pages of each pope. It's three books, but it's a very easy read and very interesting, very interesting. Okay, so let's go back. And now we're going to talk about uh, the Neronian persecution ending with the suicide of Nero. And the suicide of Nero is an interesting topic. So let's talk about that a little bit. Then we'll talk about the finishing of the gospel. And then that's going to be it. So let's see right here. First Jewish war pursuits later years. Here we go. Nero's death. Okay. So there were a lot of problems going on in Rome at the time. Um, Nero eventually fled Rome with the intention of going to the port of Ostia and from there to take a fleet to one of the still loyal eastern provinces. So people were revolting against him. And according to Suetonius, Nero abandoned the idea when some army officers openly refused to obey his commands, responding with a line from Virgil's Aeneid, quote, it is so dreadful a thing then to die. I'm sorry. Is it so dreadful a thing then to die? Unquote. Nero then toyed with the idea of fleeing to Parthia, throwing himself upon the mercy of Galba or appealing to the people and begging them to pardon him for his past offenses. And if he could not soften their hearts to entreat them at least to allow him the prefecture of Egypt. Suetonius reports that the text of this speech was later found in Nero's writing desk, but that he dared not give it from fear of being torn to pieces before he could reach the forum. Nero returned to Rome and spent the evening in the palace. After sleeping, he awoke at about midnight to find the palace guard had left. Dispatching messages to his friends' palace chambers for them to come, he received no answers. Upon going to their chambers personally, he found them all abandoned. When he called for a gladiator or anyone else adept with a sword to kill him, no one appeared. He cried, quote, have I neither friend nor foe, unquote, and ran out as if to throw himself into the Tiber. The Tiber is the third longest river in Italy and the longest river in central Italy. It goes through Rome. So returning, Nero sought a place where he could hide and collect his thoughts. An imperial freedman offered his villa. Uh, traveling in disguise, Nero and four loyal freedmen reached the villa where Nero ordered them to dig a grave for him. At this time, a courier arrived with a report that the Senate had declared Nero a public enemy, that it was their intention to execute him by beating him to death, and that armed men had been sent to apprehend him for the act to take place in the Roman form. So let's stop a little bit and talk about why Nero is important. Nero was kind of crazy. He did a lot of crazy things, and I'm, I don't want to go too far into Nero because that's going kind of into the weeds of things that aren't specifically important to church history. But Nero himself is important to church history because part of his crazy things that he did was persecute Christians. And he got a lot of people to go along with that and a lot of the other crazy, crazy things that he did. But a lot of the, the 
uh, pagans wanted to go along with the persecution of Christians because Christians were um, raising so much money. They were starting to build churches and they were doing all these charitable things. And people were going away from the pagan religions and they're like, this is not cool. They're worshiping some God we don't know about. And this God tells them not to worship other gods. So yeah, we're down with you, Nero. Let's get rid of the Christians. But when Nero came up with all this other crazy stuff, which is probably a part of him, him uh, persecuting Christians, he probably, you know, his guardian angel went away. So he doesn't really have any protection from God anymore, similar, similarly to what happened with Pharaoh in Egypt. So I don't want to go into the weeds too much about Nero, but he, a little bit of his life and his death are important because the persecution ended when he died. So that's why we're going over his death a little bit. So the Senate was actually reluctant and deliberating on the right course of action as Nero was the last member of the Julio-Claudian family. Indeed, most of the senators had served the imperial family all their lives and felt a sense of loyalty to the deified bloodline, if not to Nero himself. The men actually had the goal of returning Nero back to the Senate, where the Senate hoped to work out a compromise with the rebelling governors that would preserve Nero's life so that at least a future heir to the dynasty could be pr produced. Nero, however, did not know this, and at the news brought by the courier, he prepared himself for suicide, pacing up and down, muttering, qualis artifex perio, what an artist dies in me. Losing his nerve, he begged one of his companions to setting the example by killing himself first. At last, the sound of approaching horsemen drove Nero to face the end. However, he still could not bring himself to take his own life, but instead forced his private secretary to perform the task. And that was it. Nero died. Um, and with his death came the end of Christian persecution, which is a good, which was a good thing. Now, the Christian persecution kind of started again with different emperors, but the main persecution um, that he had started ended with him. And thank goodness this did. And now we're going to talk about in the year 69, the gospel of Mark was completed. And we know what the gospel of Mark is, right? We don't have to talk about that much, but we can talk a little bit about the historicity because we're talking about history in this podcast. So in the 19th century, it became widely accepted that Mark was the earliest of the gospels and therefore the most reliable source for the historical Jesus. But since about 1950, there's been a growing consensus that the primary purpose of the author of Mark was to announce a message rather than to report history. The idea that the gospel could be used to reconstruct the historical Jesus suffered two severe blows in the early part of the 20th century when William Reid argued strongly that the messianic secret motif in Mark was a creation of the early church rather than a reflection of the historical Jesus, <coughs> which I don't agree, but we can talk about it anyway. And in 1919, when Carl Ludwig Schmidt further undermined his historicity with his contention that the links between episodes are the invention of the writer, meaning that it cannot be taken as a reliable guide to chronology of Jesus' mission. Both claims are widely accepted today, not accepted by me. So one thing you have to look out for when you're looking into Bible history, and this is a really tricky thing, and that's why I'm doing commentary with my history, right? One tricky thing you have are people who are quote-unquote experts. Me, I'm not an expert. I'm not. I'm reading from Wikipedia, which has been which has a huge bibliography and it has been researched and sourced. And, you know, just in halfway down the page, we have 19 sources 
already. And these sources are just wonderful, great books that you can look into and research more for yourself. But once you start reading more and more and more in, and you take history out of the context of the tradition, yes, sometimes you need to do that. But for the most part, the people who were there and wrote things then, they know what happened. But what scripture scholars and historical scholars want to do is take the miraculous aspects and out of Jesus and try to figure out, well, who really was Jesus? He was just some guy. So how can we figure out based on the gospels who he was? And they can't do it. Why can't they do it? Because Jesus wasn't just some guy. Jesus was, he did miracles. He um, he claimed himself to be God. And as I believe he is God, and that's what the gospels say. So they can't, you know, they can't mix those two things together because for them, there are no miracles. There is no one who can just be God. So um, when you look into these things, you need to make sure when they say it's like an expert or historical expert or whatever, and just if it sounds funny to you, then sometimes either look more into it and see who wrote it. But sometimes you can just, it's just throw it away. Just forget it. Like this, they don't believe that Mark was first, um, which really isn't super important if Mark was first or not. Um, but saying that they don't believe Mark is a good history for Jesus is ridiculous because one of the things uh, about like Alexander the Great, which I love the stories I learned about him in school, but one of the things they don't tell you in school is they weren't writing about Alexander the Great for hundreds of years. We don't have a biography of Alexander for hundreds of years. These biographies of Jesus came out within decades. Like Jesus was dead for 10, 20 years and the gospels were being written. They were being written like right after he, you know, ascended into heaven. So how can you say there are not good hist historical accounts, but you're going to look at Alexander the Great, whose stories were written two, 300 years after, or for example, Siddhartha Gautama, whose stories were written 500 years, 500 years after he died. You say these are good historical accounts, but the gospels, eh, not so much. I mean, come on, give me a break. Just my opinion. But I believe in this instance, I'm right. Just looking at the facts that the Gospels were written uh, very shortly after Jesus died. The stories of other historical figures from that time period were written hundreds of years, hundreds of years after they died. So the Gospels are good historical accounts because they were firsthand accounts written by the people who were there right after the things happened. So we're going to move on from the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to go to our last point today, which is the fall of Jerusalem. <laughs> Some words I just can't say today. I don't know what's going on with that. The fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. So let's look into that. Uh, let's see. Okay, Herod's temple. Second temple Judaism. Hmm. Trying to find it here. Destruction. Here we go. In 66, see, it's not CE, I don't even know, common era. What is common era? The era that was common after Jesus. It is AD, AD 66. The Jewish population rebelled against the Roman Empire. Four years later, on the 4th of August in AD 70, the ninth day of Av, and possibly the day of which Tisha B'Av was observed, or the 30th of August, AD 70, Roman legion, legions under Titus retook and destroyed much of, of Jerusalem and the second temple. The arch of Titus in Rome 
um, was built to commemorate Titus' victory in Judea. It depicts a Roman victory procession with soldiers carrying spoils from the temple, including the menorah. The menorah is uh, a seven-lamp ancient Hebrew lampstand made of pure gold and used in the portable sanctuary set up by Moses in the wilderness and later in the temple in Jerusalem. And if you've seen one, you know exactly what I'm talking about. According to an inscription on the Colosseum, Emperor Vespasian built the Colosseum with war spoils in AD 79, possibly from the spoils of the Second Temple. The sects of Judaism that had their base in the temple dwindled in importance, including the priesthood and the Sadducees. The temple was on the site of what today is the Dome of the Rock, which is an Islamic shrine located um, in the old city of Jerusalem. Um, it was initially completed in 691 um, at the order of Umayyad Caliph Ab al-Malik during the second fitna on the site of the second Jewish temple. And uh, we're, we're probably going to get into some Islamic stuff later because it is actually an important part of Christian history. So the gates let out close to al-Asqa Mas, which came much later. Although Jews continued to inhabit the destroyed city, Emperor Hadrian established a new city called Elia Capitolina at the, um, okay, which is, which I guess was going to replace Jerusalem because they had destroyed it. At the end of the Bar Kokhba revolt in 135 AD, many of the Jewish communities were massacred and Jews were banned from living inside Jerusalem. A pagan Roman temple was set up on the former site of Herod's temple. And why did they do that? We will go into that when we get there because it is a very interesting period and it's not it's not exactly super important for Christian history, but if we come to it when we get to around 135 AD, then we'll talk about it more. And that's it for today. So we're going to go over a couple of the things, a quick rundown. So we went from 50 to 70 AD, right? So 50, one of the first things that happened was Paul wrote his epistles. What can we learn from what Paul did? Well, we can learn from Paul every single day. All we have to do is open up the Bible and read any of his epistles. And they are beautiful uh, works of writing, and they are great for using to live your life by and to become a better person and for understanding God more. So what can we learn from the history of that? Boom, it's right there. Open up the Bible. You got it. So um, St. Thomas arrived in India and he founded the Syro Malabar Church, which is still alive and well today. And what can we learn from that is that somebody from 2000, the, the God is so powerful and so amazing. Can you imagine this? St. Thomas went to India 2000, over 2000 years ago, and there is still a church there that can trace its roots all the way back to him. That is just amazing in my mind. And what can we learn from that? What God sets up, no man can tear down. And we have, and, and God People might walk away from them and try to build another house elsewhere, but that doesn't mean the foundation still isn't there. And it's just so amazing that St. Thomas went to India in AD 52, and there is still a church there that traces its roots all the way back to him in AD 2020.
20. So what can we learn from that? If you're on the rock of Christ, you cannot go wrong. And whatever you build there will last for thousands of years. Moving on, in 64, we had the Neronian persecution beginning after the great fire of Rome. What can we learn from that? Is that there will always be persecutions and we need to ready ourselves by prayer and fasting. And we need to remember that these tough times are going to come right now. They're looking to shut down churches again in California. I mean, and I'm kind of dating this podcast a little bit, but that's okay. At this time of the recording, in California, they're scared of, I don't live in California, but I read about it. They're scared of the um, a virus that's going around and they're saying that we're going to shut more things down, but they're allowing certain places, which I will call gentlemen's clubs, to remain open while churches have to close down. There have been lawsuits and other things like that. And the similar thing has been happening in other states. They're, they are shutting down churches and priests and um, bishops, pastors are suing as they should be these governors and saying, look, you can't shut us down and allow other places to be open. You can't say we're not as important as X, Y, Z, or we're not essential. Churches are essential. Our spiritual well-being is essential, even more essential than some other things. So there will be persecutions. There are persecutions right now. You have to be, be prepared for them by praying and fasting and staying close to the rock that is Christ. In 67, we had the martyrdom of St. Paul and St. Peter around the same time. What can we learn from that? Uh, same thing, like I was saying, there's going to be persecutions. Sometimes they're going to ramp up and be very violent. Sometimes they're going to be white persecutions, which just which means that it's just harder to get a job. It's harder to go to church. It's They don't want you to show your faith openly. That's the white martyrdom. The red martyrdom is, of course, of course when you get killed. And nobody wants that. All martyrdoms are a chance for us to prove ourselves to God. He allows it so that we can become holier. In 67, Pope Linus becomes the second pope after St. Peter because St. Peter was crucified. In 68, uh, oh, what can we learn about uh, Pope Linus? Well, we can learn from this that God doesn't leave us alone. God puts things in place that are going to lead us to holiness. He did it with the Jews, with the temple, and he had the ironic priesthood. And those those priests were leading the Jewish people or were supposed to lead the Jewish people to holier and holier um, places. Same thing. Jesus left the church with the Pope and the popes were supposed to lead you know, the faithful to holier and holier places. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes we got good, good popes. Sometimes we got really, really bad popes. Right now, it's kind of a eh, in-between Pope, in my opinion. Some people really love Pope Francis. I'm like kind of in-between on him. Sometimes he says great stuff, and I'm like, yes, awesome. Sometimes he's says some, some stuff that I just have to shake my head at. So, you know, God allows that he is the rock, Christ is the rock, but he also allows leaders to be in place that are supposed to lead us to become holier. But hey, even they can fall. Um, but anyway, Pope Linus was the second Pope, and then we talked about the Neronian persecution ending when Nero committed suicide. And what we can learn from that is that, of course, suicide is bad, okay? Nobody should commit suicide. We recently had Mental Health Awareness Month, and um, it's very important to talk to people about their feelings, and that is a part of loving your neighbor 
and doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you feel like you want somebody to talk to you and and you want to share your feelings and you're feeling overwhelmed, guess what? Somebody else is feeling that way too. And um, Nero just went over the deep end. He did a whole bunch of crazy stuff and he persecuted Christians and he lost his angel. He lost a protection from God. If we talk to people, if we tell them about, about our feelings, and if we um, try to stay close to God, we pray and fast, and then we can't go wrong. So if you're feeling, um, you know, kind of off, off a little bit, if your emotions are getting to you, things are getting too tough, talk to somebody, okay? Don't be afraid to talk to somebody. Everything doesn't have to go straight to, okay, well, it's all prayer. Prayer is going to fix everything all the time. That's not necessarily the case. God wants us to be in a society with other people. And sometimes he puts it in us, in our hearts, to talk to another person. Prayer is good. Praying with other people is good. Praying with your family, fasting, prayer, of course, those are awesome. I'm not saying you shouldn't do them. But also sometimes you need to talk to somebody about your feelings, your emotions, the suf the sufferings and struggles you're having. So don't forget to do that. Then we talked about the Gospel of Mark, which was completed in about the year 69, and how it is a good source for the historicity of Jesus and a good biography of Jesus because it was written only about 30 years after Jesus died. Well, not written, completed. It was completed about 30 years after Jesus died. So it's probably being written 15 to 20 years after Jesus dies and rose from the dead. So the Gospel of Mark is a great, great, great source of the historicity the historicity of Jesus, because it was written so close to his death, resurrection, and ascension. And the last thing we talked about was the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And um, what can we learn from that is that when you rebel from God, which the Jewish people were doing at this current time, and they were saying that, and of course, as Christians, we believe the Messiah was Jesus Christ, and he was crucified, and there's they were this... Um, second kind of revolt this this revolt and the destruction of the temple happened because there was a different person who was saying that they were the messiah and they were going to lead the jews to a um kind of a political i don't want to say heaven but they were going to lead them to salvation politically through this war and they were going to beat back the romans kind of like the maccabees did that well the maccabees it wasn't the romans it was uh ptolemy and a couple of other people but they wanted to be like the Maccabees, beat back the Romans, and this Messiah was going to save everybody in that way. They were wrong. They followed the wrong Messiah, and the temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed a few, uh, like a hundred years later, after another revolt, after they weren't following another Messiah. So don't follow false messiahs because that's always going to lead you to the wrong place. Follow Jesus and Jesus alone and Jesus' teachings, and you really can't go wrong. And it's in the Bible there for you. It's spelled out black and white. Sometimes you need a little help. You need a little uh, apologist to kind of show you where you maybe misunderstood something. And that's why I like to listen to different radio shows that explain the faith. And I like to read the catechisms. Um, the Catechism of the Catholic Church is a good one. The Baltimore Catechism is one of my favorite ones. There's also the Penny Catechism. So there's lots of different ones you can check out where if the Bible is just a little bit too dense for you and just needs some, something to help you live your life by, check out the catechism. So that's it for today's show. I think one of my longest ones, about an hour. So we're going to keep doing these shows until I do all 2,000 years of church history. So check back 
for the next episode. In episode four, we're going to be going from the year 72 until about the year 95. I will see you then. And we're going to end out with a prayer. And I hope that you have a great day. And I hope that God blesses you. And I hope that you stay holy and continue learning from history and becoming a better and better person. We're going to end out with an Our Father in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Thanks for checking out the Shalom Case and Show, Timeline of Church History. This was episode three. Check out the other two episodes if you haven't already, and more will be coming at least once a week. God bless, and until next time, stay holy, my friend.